Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Lawrence Summers was with us the other day, the Secretary of Treasury and obviously from Harvard University, and he wrote a blistering essay today in the Washington Post, and we will begin with that with the wonderful Ellen Zetner of Morgan Stanley. The Fed has not internalized the magnitude, the magnitude of its errors over the past year is operating with an inappropriate and dangerous framework. Professor Summers with Alan Stomash goes on to say there can be no reliable progress against inflation without substantial increases in real interest rates, which mean temporary increases in unemployment. Ms. Zentner is with Morgan Stanley. Alan, you know that the word magnitude is used differently by people like Zentner, people like Summers. How hard is it right now to gauge the magnitude of this moment, this March magnitude? How hard is it to gauge the how much forward for you? The how much I love it. Uh, so look, the, the, it, it's easy to get on the, the train of saying the Fed is behind the curve. And I think there are folks on the FOMC that would agree that they're probably behind the curve. Um, but there are enough risks in the economy still, and with renewed geo, uh, new geopolitical concerns, um, that it does make sense to start off with a 25 basis point <clears throat> hike. You don't want to add to the volatility that's already in the markets. I think what we're going to see is that Chair Powell is going to leave the door open to be right. sure that markets know that they can go in bigger increments at any time. But to say that the Fed is operating under the wrong framework, I think is just absolutely uh, inconsistent with what we've heard from the Fed. I think it was pretty quickly that they abandoned the new framework when they went solely to focusing on uh, in inflation. Uh, so I don't think they're operating on the, under that old framework, or the old, the 20, yeah. 2019 framework or 2020 framework. And the headline there is Zentner pushing back against Summers. Ellen, I want to stay on magnitude, which goes to the reaction functions of the Fed. Can we have any predictable reaction functions given the mix of economic data, the dynamics of the American system? Or are we literally, with Chairman Powell, flying blind out of this pandemic with the overlay of war in Ukraine? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, flying blind is a, is a good way to put it. Uh, you know, I think under this environment, it's uh, absolutely appropriate to expect uh, high volatility to continue. Um, volatility equals uncertainty, and it means that you have monetary policymakers that are going to have to make decisions meeting by meeting based on the data that they have in hand and where they think it is likely uh, going. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're following financial conditions so closely and when those are being impacted, uh, not just by your own communication, but uh, of late by uh, external sources, you know, it's, it's out of your control. And you just really have to watch and take it step by step, feel your way in the sand uh, with your toes. Uh, and that's what the Fed is going to be doing. And so I think Chair Powell is going to underscore that in his uh, Q&A session uh, today. Um, and that means that markets are going to have to really be nimble as the Fed is going to be nimble, that you could see 25 basis points, 50, 50, or all 25s, yeah. or 
What we do know is that they're hiking. The hiking cycle has begun, and there is a lot of room for them to get far in rate hikes uh, without uh, impacting the economy. And I think that's what is most misunderstood by the market. Well, Ellen, to that point, let's put some numbers on that that you expect. We're going to end the year of 2023 with a base Fed funds rate of 2.625%, well above where the 10-year and, frankly, the 30-year are at this point. And you also expect quantitative tightening, not just a cessation of purchases of bonds, but actually the shrinking of the balance sheet to begin in May. So here's what I'm struggling with, struggling with, Ellen. If this is actually going to be effective Fed tightening, why will that not translate to a slower growth paradigm that could potentially slow the trajectory of their rate hikes? Yeah, so it's it's a great question, Lisa. So they do. So here's the part uh, of, of Summers' uh, uh, op-ed that I do agree with. The the basically he's laying out in a way that the Fed can't. Um, that their other job is to raise the unemployment rate. Um, now it doesn't sound very good for policymakers to stand in front of the public and say, "Hey, we're, we need to raise the unemployment rate." But that's part of their job. They have to create slack, and to create slack, you've got to slow the economy. So we do have the economy slowing. Uh, and we've taken growth forecasts down for this year and significantly raised inflation forecasts. But the economy is still growing well beyond its potential, which is in the one and a half to 1.8% range. Uh, and so you are still going to put downward pressure on the unemployment rate. At the, at the very least, uh, toward the end of the year, we should start to see the unemployment rate flatten out. If it doesn't, as policymakers have warned, then you could see an unemployment rate in the high twos. And that's still going to mean that the Fed has a lot more to do. So I think in order to slow the economy and help inflation uh, cool, they are going to have to hike as much as we believe. And again, you all mentioned uh, that the the market is expecting seven uh, rate hikes this year, a 725 basis point equivalent. We're expecting 625 basis point equivalent. It's really in 2023 where we expect four additional hikes to get uh, in that range of, of two and a half to two and three quarters percent, that's where the market has it wrong. This economy is less sensitive to higher interest rates. uh, And so the Fed is going to have to hike further in order to slow the economy enough and raise the unemployment rate enough. We have to leave it there. Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Thank you. Right now, we got to get to this, and there's like eight ways to go here, including the news out of Chelsea and football. But on a serious note, we talked to Bob Michael right now, CIO at J.P. Morgan Investment Management of the Note. And Bob, I just want to tell you, I have completed my bracket. And Gorgonzola is who I have going all the way to the finals. <laughs> so I'm looking Dude, forward to don't that. Don't put too much money on Gorgonzola. <laughs> go with Gonzaga. Too much money it's a much better Gorgonzola. And I did not bus. go with Yale, folks. I had to go with Purdue because the woman from Purdue signs my paycheck. It's that simple as that. Bob, on a serious note, Chairman Powell faces serious consequences of the decisions today and May 4th. What's his biggest focus to get to the autumn of this year? Well, it's interesting to me, if you go back to January, he walked into this year surprisingly hawkish, and that that caught the market off guard. I'm looking for three things from the Fed today. I want to see if they're opening the door to 50 basis point hikes and how soon they'll do it. I'm also looking at um, the quantitative tightening. How fast will they roll that forward? I think they should bring that forward to June. 
And then lastly, I want to see that trade-off between growth and inflation. For sure, growth will slow down in the back end of the year. But if inflation is still high, I think the market expects they may back off a bit. I think the market will be surprised how hawkish he is today and how focused on inflation he is today. Well, let's go through that point by point, Bob, and let's start with the dot plot and then we'll go to the news conference. The dot plot for 23 right now, about 165 for 24, just a little north of 2%. What kind of shift are you expecting there? Well, it's throwing darts today, given where all the data is. But what I'd like to see is I'd like to see the dots for the end of this year at 2%. And I want to see if anyone has the courage to put them at 3% at the end of 2023. 2% at the end of this year, Bob. That's what you you want to happen. What do you think will happen? Oh, I think they'll do it. I'm certain they'll do it. I I think they'll throw in a 50 at the May meeting and they'll do uh, six 25 basis point hikes at the other six meetings this year. So, Bob, where does quantitative tightening fit into this? How much can they really execute a shrinking of the balance sheet? Oh, I think they'll announce it at the May meeting and do it in June. I think all of it gets pulled forward. Look, they've already made one policy error so far by letting inflation get to where it is. We're looking at the Dallas Trimine personal consumption expenditures. It's close to 7%. And that's without all the inflation that's going in the pipeline now that we're going to see over the next three to six months. So they've got a lot to do to lean into inflation. And I think what you're going to hear from them is that's their focus even if it means sacrificing growth at the end of the year. Well, but Bob, that's exactly where I wanted to go because you're saying that they've already made a huge policy error, but a lot of the inflationary inputs are far out of their control. They are commodity driven. They also are driven by some of the uh, pandemic era distortions. So at this point, is that the only tool they have to materially slow the economy even further than inflation will do naturally? Nonsense. Not everything has been out of their control. There have been an awful lot of things that have been in their control. Look at the the price of, of new homes. Look at the cost of shelter, the cost of housing. That's gone through the roof. Why? Because if it costs more, but the cost to finance it remains close to zero, guess what? You can pay more. They should have hiked rates and stopped purchasing mortgages six to 12 months ago. And that would have slowed down the housing market a bit. I think they've got a tough summer ahead because there's a lot of pent-up demand yet to be satiated. That's going to happen over the summer. I see the toughest month for them to get through is July. Bob Michael, you know how this works. You dial 1-800-BOB-MICHAEL. You've got a ton of money to put to work. What do you tell them now? Where'd you put it? Well, as you know, we walked into this year somewhat conservative, thinking that things had gotten a bit of themselves ahead of themselves in the credit market and raised cash. Now we're putting it back to work. I think over the course of a couple months, we've got a year's worth of repricing. We're looking at high yield, for example, that we came into this year at an all-in yield around 4%. We're now at over 6%. You look at investment-grade credit. Spreads have gone up from 80 or 90 basis points to 150 basis points. Yields are up 1.3%. So there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen to corporate America and corporate Europe. We think they'll be more resilient than a lot of investors anticipate, and there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. There was a lot coming into this year because of the de-risking. More has built Mm -hmm. built up. I think you're going to see that put to work in the second quarter. 
Bob Michael, Friday evening, 7 p.m., you're gaming Liverpool's next victory. I'm reading Kasman and Faroli cover-to-cover in weekly prospects. As you read your colleagues, Kasman and Faroli, what does it tell you, given higher yields, what foreign flows will do? My problem with the doom and gloom of moving out to higher yields, lower fixed income prices, is the foreigners always show up, don't they? Yeah, they do. And you'll probably see some of that in the coming quarter, because for sure, you're not going to see the Bank of Japan raise rates in here. For sure, the ECB, I think they'll still hike this year, but they'll talk it down until the back end of the year. So that money will look at the higher yields and come in. That's probably why you don't get to 3% 10-year treasuries over the next couple of months. Can you get there by the end of the year? I think with the inflationary pressures in the pipeline, you will get there. Bob, would you like to see the Cubs at Chelsea? Just as a Red Sox, Liverpool man, would you like to see that happen? There are so many bad things in that question. First of all, I'm a Philadelphia guy, so it's the Phillies. And now I'm a Liverpool supporter. (laughs) This is just a bridge too far for me. How did it happen? How did the Liverpool thing happen, Bob? Um, It's a a very long story, but... We have time. We... we, I spent nine years in London. We landed in London the year that England beat Germany 5-1. Michael Owen scored a hat trick. We all looked at Michael Owen. Who did he play for? Liverpool. And that became our club. And that was that. But Michael, thank you, sir. Our goal here for this invasion, this war, or as Mr. Putin says, this special operation is to bring you guests of authority and earned expertise. Georgia is to the southern side, think Joseph Stalin, and it was one of Mr. Putin's first wars in Russia. It was violent and brutal. With courage, Ian Kelly is the former U.S. ambassador to Georgia, served in a very tenuous time, and he joins us now with his brilliant academics out of Columbia in his academics out of Northwestern this day. Uh, Professor Kelly, Ambassador Kelly, welcome to Bloomberg. Wonderful to have you today. My book of the year is Angela Stent's Putin's World. You use it in class. What does Putin's world look like right now? Putin's world uh, looks very, very circumscribed right now. He started out uh, telling the Russian people that uh, they were going to be able to become uh, fully participatory in uh, international financial systems, be able to travel, uh, be able to use uh, and and hold in their banks foreign currency, be able to use uh, worldwide credit cards. And of course that has now uh, come crashing down and uh, the Putin's world, Mm -hmm. as I say, is now very small. Let's go to your expertise, and and I don't want to make allusions here to Hitler and Putin and that. That would be inappropriate. But I will suggest that all of his work, including his battles in Georgia, is with a Slavic certitude. You study the Slavic nation's culture and language. Is that breaking down for Mr. Putin right now, that certitude of the Russian Slavic experience? Well, I think that he made a serious mistake in thinking that the uh, that the Ukrainians would welcome their Eastern Slavic brothers. I think what he's trying to do in in Ukraine and what he has been doing with, uh, with Belarus and to a certain extent Kazakhstan, where there are many 
Russian speakers, is to try and create a Russian world, to create a Moscow-centric uh, community. Uh, he, I don't think he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union, but he does want to uh, restore an Eastern Slavic uh, homeland or, or community. The idea that there are borders between Russia and Ukraine uh, pains him. And what even more pains him is the idea that the Ukrainians would want to orient themselves towards the West yeah. and not towards Moscow. Ambassador, as we sit here today, we are getting a series of headlines saying that talks are ongoing and seem more realistic between Ukraine and Russia. Do you buy that, given that we cannot reset the clock and go back to where we were, that it means more NATO troops on the borders of uh, Russia, that it means a Ukraine that's living with this scarred history? Well, I think it's it, it was impossible uh, for anyone, really, I think, to see how there could be a diplomatic solution based on Putin's initial maximalist goals, which was the decapitation of the Ukrainian government and what he called the demilitarization of the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, which he said uh, falsely were being controlled by uh, the U.S. and NATO. It's interesting that you're starting to see um, a change in the rhetoric in terms of their goals. They're not talking about the denazification of the government. They're talking more about uh, Ukraine becoming neutral, in other words, not joining NATO. Uh, so that I think is, is significant. Um, but whether or not it leads to a cessation of, of hostilities because uh, the uh, the other the the new demand that they put in is a recognition of Crimea and the eastern Ukraine enclave of of Donbas, and uh, I can't see the Ukrainians uh, giving up sovereignty over a big chunk of their territory. Ambassador, can uh, I just jump in point. just quickly, slightly off track, but we just got a headline about how to get Ukraine more military help. We've been trying to figure out why sending the MiGs would be considered an escalation. Why has the U.S. declared that? as an escalation if they were to do so? I, I think what it is, is uh, uh, the uh, Poles wanted to send the, the planes to, uh, to Ramstein Air Base, a US Air Base in Germany, and then have the planes uh, flown in from a US base in, in Germany. I think it's that particular, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the origin of the planes, I think, which is giving uh, Washington pause and I, uh, I, I think that they're they're overestimating the uh, the possible risk uh, of of flying from a from a U.S. base, but that's my understanding of it. Ian, thank you just for that clarification at the end there as well. Ian Kelly, there, the former U.S. ambassador to Georgia. If you are a gentleman from North Carolina State, you know the distance from I seventy five from Knoxville down to Chattanooga. Yes, Dennis Gartman, in my bracket, I've got Knoxville playing Chattanooga. I'm going to go for the romance of a South there in basketball. But the backdrop here in America, across our agricultural complex, is the planting season. In the serious moment for Ukraine and their agriculture, we speak to the younger, the younger Dennis Gartman of the Kansas, Kansas Board of Trade, chairman of University of Akron Endowment. Dennis, I don't want to buy stocks today. I don't want to go long short. I want to talk to you from your ute and the Kansas Board of Trade about the planting season. 
How serious is that for Ukraine? Very serious, Tom. It's, it's something that we have to pay very much attention to. Ukraine and Russia are about 8% of the world's uh, exports of wheat. The fact is the winter wheat crop, which is in the ground now, is probably deteriorating something fierce. Nobody's paying attention to it. Nobody's being able to get in the fields to take care of it. It's coming out of dormancy and it's going to be a greatly reduced crop. There'll be a corn crop of some size, but it'll be demonstrably smaller than in the past. And the question shall be, will they get next year's winter wheat crop planted in September and October and November when that crop has to go in the ground? So the wheat right. crop, wheat prices here in the United States have been on an absolute tear from the lower left to the upper right. They've dropped a little bit in the past several days, but it's been just a demonstrative, monstrous bull right. market led by wheat. <clears throat> Dennis, you and I have sat in the boardroom of the New York Stock Exchange and talked about this. Can we monitor the Ukraine planting season by weather, or are there other factors we can observe, including the danger of Russian troops? Well, clearly the danger of Russian troops is one thing. The, the ability to get the crop out of the ground and shipped is another thing completely. Whether the, the port facilities at Odessa will be operative is, a, is another question entirely. Will the rail facilities that have to move the crop from, from the interior of the country to the, uh, to the ports is another question entirely. It's one question after another, and confusion breeds contempt. Confusion breeds uh, higher prices under most circumstances for a while. And then suddenly you see an increase in the planted acreage here in the United States. We'll probably see a big increase in spring wheat planting here in the U.S. to take advantage of the fact that wheat prices have gone so high. So it's a real question that it's something people are not paying much attention to. The other thing we, pay, we need to pay attention to is that here in the States, how high soybean prices are and the fact that you're going to have and how high fertilizer prices are, which means you're going to have a huge shift, probably three, four five million acres out of corn into soybeans because you need you don't need fertilizer for the bean crop and you need fertilizer for the for the corn crop. This this could be the first time in 20 years that we actually plant more acreage to soybeans than we do to corn. Strange, strange, strange circumstances indeed. Dennis, do you feel like the market is underestimating the elasticity of some of these agricultural commodities? Yes. To put it bluntly, yes. I think the market is underestimating. I think that we can still see demonstrably higher prices over the course of the next year or two. As, as I always tell people, watch what the term structures are doing in storable commodities. When the backwardations widen on, on up days and then backwardations widen on down days also, it tells you that the market still wants to go higher. So the answer to your question, yes. Dennis, it's been a while. It's good to catch up, particularly in this environment. Dennis Gartman there on this commodity market. Uh, what we're going to do here is have a bit of a different conversation with David Rubenstein uh, this morning. We celebrate his interview here with Mr. Chesky. Let's do that quickly as we can. Who is Mr. Chesky and why is he germane right now? Well, Brian Chesky is one of the three people that started Airbnb, which is a, a phenomenon among young people, but also middle-aged people now. And it's relevant now because as the world is changing and people aren't coming to the office quite the much as much as they used to, they're working remotely. More and more people are using Airbnb to kind of relocate mm -hmm. themselves. And in fact, uh, roughly 20% uh, of all the people that use Airbnb do it for 30 days or more. And half the people use it for a week or more. It's not like a one night kind of uh, overnight thing like a hotel might be. So it's changed completely uh, the perception of what you do with your time when you're away from your home. You can stay a much longer period of time than you did before. Mm -hmm. And his company is doing quite well. 
Well, and the future of Airbnb in some ways uh, hinges on the future of work from home, on the future of the ability to take a month and go to Hawaii and spend it there. How much on Wall Street is that really going to be the story when you see the likes of Goldman Sachs and even J.P. Morgan really emphasizing working in the office? Well, J.P. Morgan and Morgan's uh J.P. Morgan and others are saying, come to the office. But these are very unique and unusual firms. They're centered in New York. They're financial service kinds of organizations. The average person doesn't work at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. The average person might be can, can work from home or can work from very remote sources. So it's changed the way people uh, live and work. I don't think after the uh, pandemic that we've gone through, people are going to come back to the office five days a week in the same pattern that we've had before. And Airbnb is going to uh, I think capitalize on that. It already has. It's done quite well, despite the fact that initially when, when the pandemic came about, all of a sudden Airbnb was in big trouble. People weren't traveling at all. Now it's re rebounded and it's doing quite well. It's got a market value of about $92 billion now. So we're Go ahead, Tom. Lisa, please. No, honestly, this has been a really interesting moment because we're talking about these work from home trends. We're talking about uh, the return to offices amid a new backdrop of crisis, right? And I wonder, as uh, as the head of a company trying to figure out, heads of investment company, talking to other heads of companies, how are people rethinking their business plans on the prospect of more prolonged commodity prices, of more prolonged disruption, even beyond the pandemic? I think all employers are learning it's not as easy to get your people back to work as you once thought. You just can't say come back to work and they all come back exactly five days a week the way they used to. So you also have a hard time getting employees now in many, in many companies. So you have to be more tolerant of what employees want to do. And employees have now tasted the idea that you can work at home a couple of days a week or you can work remotely. And in the whole, I think this is changing mm -hmm. the way people will work for quite some time into the future. Airbnb is taking advantage of that because it's providing homes or, or other apartments to people who can take away a week or a month or more from their place where they actually supposed to be in the office working. David, yesterday, the announcement of the death after, I believe, a 10-year battle, real illness for Michael Price, the great value investor. He used to wear his Yankees ring just to aggravate me on set. Tell our audience worldwide this complete class act, Michael Price. Michael Price is one of the best value investors the country's ever seen. Obviously, Warren Buffett is probably the class of all value investors. Michael Price was trained by somebody else. Michael Price took over a firm many years ago from a mentor and built it into a powerhouse and became uh, not only a great philanthropist, but a good sports fan, as you know, from his stake in uh, the New York Yankees. And what was important here was the grace of it. In this modern day, the snark of the modern day, we've we've lost the the grace that you would see of a Michael Price or John Templeton and the others. Both uh, John Templeton and Michael Price didn't brag about themselves very much. Not at all. Relatively Stunning. modest people. Yeah. And uh, Michael Price wasn't a headline person. Most people in the investment yeah. world probably didn't even know him. And outside the investment world, probably very few knew him. But he was seen as a class act, a smart person, yeah. and he was very, very philanthropic. David Rubenstein, thank you for joining us. Look forward to thank speaking you. here, particularly on Russia. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.